And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Eldon Taylor, New York Times bestselling author who has earned doctorates in clinical and pastoral psychology. He is an ordained interdenominational minister and a fellow of the American Psychotherapy Association. Eldon hosts the popular radio show Provocative Enlightenment, which airs on 1150 AM KKNW out of Seattle. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Questioning Spirituality, Is It Irrational to Believe in God? Eldon, thank you for joining me and welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking very much forward to a good conversation with you today, Jeff. Me too, Eldon. So in doing my research of you, I found out that you used to be a criminologist. How did you go from that to studying pastoral psychology? I was actually a criminalist. There is a difference between a criminalist and a criminologist, and it has to do with, you know, the sociologist aspect of criminology versus the criminalist who's in the field, who runs a lie detection examination or does forensic work. My capacity was as a criminalist, and I spent, well, I spent 12 years doing nothing but running lie detection examinations, supervising investigations, and that sort of thing. Interestingly, Jeff, it's, it's really pretty easy to become jaded when you when the majority of people that you're interacting with um, are, you know, people that you really wouldn't want to be your neighbors. That's the best way I can put that. Okay. And in the course of that uh, process, I discovered that I'd become really pretty bitter and suspicious and paranoid and otherwise unhappy. And uh, the result of that was, you know, I, I did my, you know, I sought my own counseling. And I had a good friend, uh, Charles McCusker, who was a psychologist at the time, and um, a, a metaphysical counselor who was really probably a, a, a catalyst for change. Uh, she essentially encouraged me to become more optimistic and to begin to find good in everything. And, uh, and and as I was meeting with both of these people and doing, you know, I, I suppose what you can say, trying to rebuild um, trust in, in human beings, in, in life itself, in, in some meaning and some purpose to, uh, to all of it, a friend of mine <clears throat> approached me from the Utah State Prison. I had developed a technology uh, that today is called InterTalk, and we were using this technology in lie detection scenarios. So you would come in, sit for a lie detection exam, but while you were sitting there, the sound of air conditioning or furnace was playing, but hidden in that were dichotic messages, call them subliminal, if you will, because you weren't consciously recognizing that the truth shall set you free. That's fascinating. Um, I found that my confession rate increased. 
Our inconclusives substantially decreased. Um, and so as I was sharing this with other lie detection examiners who began to do the same thing, um, this friend of mine from the prison came to me and said, Elvin, do you think this technology could assist us in rehabilitating inmates? Could I mean, could it lower aggression, hostility rates, maybe interrupt the recidivity rate? And so I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. Lee Liston uh, was the gentleman I'm speaking of. He later became a warden uh, at the prison. But uh, Lee was a social worker. And my background was more custodial. And so I was, you know, I was a little suspicious about our ability because I was still, you know, I guess the best way to say it is I was just somewhat jaded. You know, it was like when you put someone in prison, they very often learn how to be better criminals. And the recidivity rates are horribly high. So, but I agreed that we would go out there and we would, we would do an analysis and see. So I took Charlie McCusker, who I mentioned earlier, because he was a state stat man. He gave all of the psych tests for, for the state and evaluated those. And Lee and myself, and we got a volunteer group from the Youth Defenders Facility. And um, these are 25 and, and under supposedly first-time offenders, but no first-time offender ends up in prison. Um, so anyway, we met with them. I explained what the technology was. We went through a day of lectures. We took our volunteers and uh, we administered uh, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. When we were done, all the psych instrument did was tell us what we already knew. Uh, so we, you know, high scores in self and social alienation is what I mean by that, Jeff. So we sat with these people, and as, as you talked to them about why you committed the crime and what was going through your mind and, and this sort of thing, because thoughts are things. Our stream of consciousness is a program that we run, and um, it generally tells us if we'll be successful or we'll fail or we'll try or we won't, but it also justifies why we do what we do. So as we talked to them, it became obvious to me that there was a mechanism that they were all using in one way or another to displace responsibility for what they did. It wasn't their fault, uh, but for the grace of God, there go you, you know. And we heard, you know, some sad stories. Most of them were exaggerated, like, you know, my daddy was an alcoholic. My mommy was a prostitute. The neighbor boy mainlined me when I was eight years old. But you could have two brothers come out of the same home, Jeff. One of them would be in the prison system with all these reasons, bad parenting, society, bad break. And the other would be a physician in a teaching hospital. It really came down to the choices they made. And that choice where it was self-sabotaging, they displaced the responsibility for by blaming it on someone or society generally at large. Well, if that's the mechanism, how do you undo the mechanism? 
And it occurred to me that there was only one way to undo the mechanism. They had to forgive themselves. They had to forgive society or whoever they were blaming. Um, in other words, forgiveness was the key and the only key that I could find to end this ability to blame. So we decided, okay, we'll create a, a, a set of positive affirmations that build self-esteem and confidence, as well as honest behavior, uh, respect for society. But while we're at that, I want to put this set of messages on. I forgive myself. I forgive all others. I am forgiven. And see if we can't just notch off this ability to displace. If we can get them to take responsibility, we can get them to step forward and say, you know, I just made a bad decision. I wouldn't make that decision again. Uh, we're going to have a pretty good step forward in rehabilitation. Initially, there was some discouraging remarks about whether or not we include forgiveness. The remarks like, well, if they forgive themselves, well, then they'll just go do it again. If they feel forgiven, I mean, you know, what, what's the price? Uh, that lex talionis uh, kind of thinking from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? And, and you can't let them off the hook because if you let them off the hook, then they'll just reoffend. But when we were able to explain the mechanism and the, and the theory behind what we were doing, everybody was in agreement. We ran the study. We lowered aggression. We lowered hostility. Uh, in fact, the program was so overwhelmingly impressive that the prison system installed voluntary libraries throughout their facilities and from minimum to max and other prisons cloned it out. Well, forgiveness is kind of a cornerstone of what, you know, to the best of my knowledge, all extant religions stand on. It is, it, it is a cornerstone of spirituality. It is, you know, it is that one abiding factor. As I judge, so may I be judged. If I don't have the ability to forgive, then I don't deserve forgiveness. None of us are perfect. All of us make mistakes. I think we all seek forgiveness. That was a nudge, a, 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 a good nudge. When this is, I'm going to share a story with you. And if I'm talking too much, you just jump in and tell me be quiet. Okay, let me ask you this before you go there. Okay. Do you feel that people are unable to forgive themselves because they cannot face the wrong that they committed? I think largely it, we have to rationalize what we do do. It's extremely difficult for some people to forgive themselves. And for those people, it's, it's naturally easier to hang on to blame. Uh, it's also extremely difficult to forgive some people the actions that they take. I'm reminded when you asked this question of a felon who was sentenced to death in Utah. 
for a heinous crime. Uh, and, and I mean a, a grossly heinous crime. But he rehabilitated himself in prison. He actually was able to forgive anyone and everyone except himself. He bore everything on himself, took total responsibility for it, was never able to forgive himself for the lives he'd taken in the way he'd taken it. But there wasn't a single person in the prison system, from the social psych to the custodial people, that really wanted to see him get the electric chair. He had changed that much of his life. Still, nevertheless, an act, the acts that he had been involved in, again, I mean, I, I totally understand how you just would be at loss to try and forgive yourself for those acts. I think one of the real challenges when you talk about forgiveness for most of us is to forgive ourselves. It's by far easier to forgive other people than it is to forgive ourselves. But the equation stands. Let's assume that there is a higher power. And the book we're talking about today, or will be talking about, uses reason and logic to demonstrate one thing. It's not irrational to believe. And that's an important one thing. We'll get to that later. But let's assume that there is a higher power, and that's the way you live your life. Then that higher power is likely to be looking at you through the same lens you look at other people. If you're able to forgive, then you're likely to be forgiven. If you're unable to forgive, there's likely to be some, uh, you're likely to continue to judge yourself on the other side and force yourself to pay for what you did. That's probably the easiest way for me to say that without, you know, conjuring up the notion of some God in the sky that's just going to beat you up because of what you did, because I don't see that at all. Um, but that's that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, so forgiveness, yes. Uh, I, I see that that's an important element for all of us. Indeed, I think it's so important that every single program we do today, whether it's a, a bodybuilding program or a stop smoking or an end self-sabotage, all of the programs that we do include those three messages. I forgive myself. I forgive all others. I am forgiven. It's critical that you find that place before you find, I think, the sense of wholeness inside where you're not punishing yourself or wanting to punish someone else. And you can genuinely... Uh, you can genuinely embrace the quintessential self that is inside every one of us. When you gave those three forgiveness phrases, the third one was, I am forgiven. Does that mean it relates to I am forgiven by God? No, it relates to I'm accepting that I'm deserving of forgiveness. Um. You know, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the story that I started, and then I can make this point. When I was a young man, I, I grew up in a very religious family, and I wanted to please my parents, and I went to church every Sunday, and and then I became involved in young men activities, and, uh, you know, I played for the church basketball team. Uh, I attained the... Aaronic priesthood, became a priest in the Aaronic priesthood. I, uh, you know, blessed the sacrament on Sundays. I was a junior assistant scoutmaster. Um, I was doing everything that I thought I was supposed to do. But I was also a student that enjoyed philosophy and history and and, you know, I, I mean, there are some stories that get uh, told in some religions that y you you just naturally question as a young person. I think we all do that. So I discovered that parthenogenesis, virgin birth, was not unique to Jesus. Uh, there's a dozen, half a dozen other um, luminaries who founded religions who... Their stories are virgin birth, uh, some who have been crucified or killed and, you know, had 12 disciples and uh, were resurrected three days later. And, you know, so you look at these stories and, and you go, and, and I've got, I've got a, some questions. Uh, the cult of the great mother, 300 years B.C., uh, sacrificed a bull uh, on the birth of the sun, the vernal equinox, S-U-N, not S-O-N. And they partake or partook in, in the blood of the bull and the flesh of the bull as a sacrament in reverence to the rebirth of the sun. And so I had these questions. I took the questions to my local clergy and bishopric, and I would ask them, and they'd say, oh, save that for seminary. So <clears throat> I get to seminary, and when I, you know, I'm really looking forward to seminary. In those days, seminary was attached to high school. This, I'm dating myself because, you know, you can't even imagine that today unless it is okay. But my seventh period class was seminary. So I'd go to seminary in seventh period, and I would, you know, regurgitate what I was supposed to learn, and I'd pass all the exams, but I had my hand up all the time, asking questions. And um, grade time came, I got an F. Now all my papers were A's. So I went to the principal of the high school who brought the seminary president and then this particular teacher over and bless his heart because I'm glad he did this. It, it, it changed the course of my life. And at first it was very disruptive, but as I look back on it, if he hadn't of, boy, I would have missed so much. But he essentially said, okay, I'll give you your A. You did get A's on everything, but you're a disturbing influence, and I don't want you to come back. So I'm 16 years old. I've just been excommunicated effectively. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, right after that, Jeff, as serendipity would have it, and I believe in serendipity, I do, or synchronicity, I do not believe that this was coincidental. I was with a girlfriend, and we were going to go to a dance, and I'm coming into this little railroad town called Woods Cross, and as I come up on the rail tracks, the car dies. And almost, I mean, instantly, the signal arms start flashing, and down come the signal arms. I'm stalled on the railroad tracks. I'm in a 57 Oldsmobile, and I'm trying to get the engine started. I look down the tracks, and here comes this train, and it is just, it looks like it's really coming fast. Connie, the girl with me, said, should we get out? And the only picture in my mind was, if we try, the train's going to hit the car, it's going to get drug over us. And I said, no, let me start the car. The next thing I know, I promise you truth, I'm standing in a field. I'm 100, 150 yards away from all these vehicles that have lights going, all these emergency vehicles, ambulances and police cars and fire trucks and traffic backed up. And it occurs to me, Connie, how's Connie? So I run over to where all these cars are and all these people. At first, they're not going to let me get to her, but then they learn I'm the driver, and they have had to cut her out of the car. The driver's side of the car isn't two feet high. Cattle guard has hit the car, crushed the driver's side, drug it down the tracks, and then thrown it free. Connie was injured. So her parents sued the railroad. As a result of that, we know the train was doing over 100 miles an hour, and it had more than 90 cars on it. Um, and Connie will tell you to this day, she had her hand on my leg when that train hit the car. Everybody thought I was dead, crushed inside this tuna can. Uh, I cannot tell you how I got into that field. Yeah. I, there's nothing I know in science that can explain what happened. Now, it took me a little bit to integrate this experience. Um, but if you wanted to combine incident, incidents, which I do, you go through this excommunication, if you will, that's my label, uh, and then you have this experience that is, is there's no science behind i don't it's not possible it's simply not possible um in fact when i first published this story i had to go back uh to the city i had to go through all the old newspaper ar uh, archives make sure that there was documentation of everything that happened because it's just that incredible but all of a sudden, instead of being oriented toward agnosticism or atheism, I know there's something more. I know there's more. So yeah, I've had this bad experience. Yeah, maybe religion, this particular religion, let me down in some way. You know, maybe, maybe they believe the words of, of. Uh, uh, that require reason to be 
what, what is it? Martin Luther said, whoever wants to be a Christian should tear the eyes out of reason. I don't see reason as incompatible with, with the spiritual life. I, I never have. And here was a signal, if you will, from the universe that there was more, that, that reason was not an enemy, that, that maybe the religion, this particular one of these particular people had let me down because I don't, I'm not meaning to speak poorly about any religion. Um, you know, life is very often just about people and you tend to judge maybe a race or you tend to judge a, a, an institution uh, because of the people you meet out of there. When that does, that's not a fair reflection on, on the institution. Okay. But for the bottom line, the bottom line to me was that was great insight. That meant there was so much more. Clifton Fadiman once said, Jeff, and God plagued man with the ability to think. When I look into the universe and I think of mankind, personhood, um, as in the image of the creator, as in the image of the divine, uh, the unmoved mover, as Aristotle said, or God, if you prefer. When, when I do that, in the image, well, it can't be that I run faster than anybody. It can't be that I'm stronger than any other animal. It, it can't be that I can swing through trees better than a baboon or swim better than, you, you know, the bottom line comes down to what makes us different is our ability to think. And that means to me, it's a blessing. It's an absolute blessing. And we should apply that. What did you conclude happened to you? Because that's an amazing story. I have, I have no conclusion. Once upon a time, I was uh, sharing this story with George Nury. And uh, one of his listeners was a reverse speech expert. And uh, that reverse speech expert reached out to me the next day and said, Eldon, what happened when I reverse your speech is light is elastic. Hmm. Wow. Well, I'm a bit of a physicist, you know, by hobby. And well, yeah, there, there's elastic. I don't see how that fits. Was it teleportation? Was it? And all I can tell you, Jeff, is I was in the car when the car was hit. Uh, and then I'm in a field and enough time has passed for all these vehicles to come and for him to, to use torches to cut Connie out of her side of the car. So how long was that? 45 minutes, an hour? I don't know. I testified to this in a court of law. No one ever questioned it. You know, it was the kind of thing that was like, it, it's a miracle. And, and, you know, to this day, I can't, I can't say anything other than we have no scientific explanation for how that is possible, period, end of quotation, based on the science that we have today. And I have a great respect for science. But, you know, maybe somewhere down in the future, we'll discover some explanation. Maybe light is elastic. Maybe we are light beings. I mean, everything is a vibration. Maybe some level of us 
you know, is able to just transform. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Teleportation. I, I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I have no, no explanation other than to know there's more than what, you know, many would like to tell us there is. We are not just reducible to meat machines who've evolved along the lines of Darwinian logic, you know, from Homo habilis to Homo sapiens sapien kind of story. Uh, there's, there's more to it than that. And all of these explanations that science offers that are supposedly the Occam's razor side of why we shouldn't believe in what they, some would call the Santa Claus analogy. Um, well, they don't hold water either. I'm not sure if you were a complete non-believer at the time. Your book is called Questioning Spirituality. Why do so many people become non-believers in your viewpoint? Well, you know, I wrote the book primarily for my two sons. Uh, I have two really bright young men who uh, one is millennial and the other is Gen Z. They were raised spiritual. Uh, they left home, went off to university, and, and they were basically introduced to this notion that critical minds uh, can easily see that, that the idea of God is, uh, pulls on your emotion. As John Wisdom said, the philosopher, uh, isn't it nice? Doesn't it make you feel good? It's kind of like having daddy at the end of the hall when you have a bad dream. Um, critical minds know that Santa Claus can't slide down that chimney. He's just too big. He certainly couldn't bring your bicycle down that chimney. Children and superstitious people. Uh, they're the people that, you know, hang on to these notions. This, these was the kind of thoughts that they were introduced to. And then, you know, look, we have the story of evolution. We have the history of, of, uh, of the planet. Uh, and so a lot of, I'm going to say dogma, particulars, are challenged about religion. Uh, those particulars, you know, the, the Earth is more than 7,000 years old. Every scientist knows that. Um, consciousness is an emergent property. Uh, we all understand what emergence is. The problem, of course, and I'm maybe stepping a little sideways here with a sidebar, but I don't want to put something on the plate and leave it standing there like it's an answer. Because the problem with emergent consciousness is if consciousness is an emergent property, it's a result of all this activity in the brain, none of which is alive. It's electrochemical, okay? And suddenly consciousness emerges. It's a local event. It's going on in my head. It's subjective. Going on in your head. It's a local event. So if we have non-local consciousness, like consciousness at a distance, like telepathy, uh, where we have solid, hard research. Uh, even the CIA and NIH have 
documents online that you can look at that demonstrate telepathy is real, okay? Precognition, the phone rings, I know who's on the phone. Uh, that's consciousness acting on a non-local basis, okay? We have that evidence. So if it's an emergent property, it can't also act on a non-local basis unless there is a collective consciousness that we've all emerged to an even greater consciousness. Well, now science doesn't want to go there. You might want to go there, but these arguments, as I say, that my sons encountered, they're not ironclad arguments. But you have to understand what those arguments are before you can ever dissuade them. My whole point with my sons and with the book, because they encouraged me, turn it into a book, Dad. Turn it into a book. We spent hours and hours, late evening hours, sometimes, you know, forgive me, imbibing good scotch. Uh, in fact, my, my son has written, and it's in the appendix, a letter to me about the book where he talks about the hours that we spent doing this kind of thing. In looking at the arguments that they were presented that gave rise to them moving away from spirituality, and then disassembling those arguments, and then going down the path of logic and reason to show the one thing I want to show. It's not irrational, period, end of quotation. It's no more irrational to believe in a higher power than it's irrational not to. In fact, it is more rational to believe when we apply logic and reason, and we might get to that. But I want to come back to your question. When you look at Gen Z and millennials, they're not only exposed to a lot of this in higher education, but they also go out into the world, and the world's kind of messed up right now. Um, a young person wants to buy a home, housing is out of sight. Um, if they haven't got 20% down to put on that house, they've got all these extra steps and charges and, and other finance arrangements that they have to go through. So it's really hard for them to afford a home. Uh, the days of VA loans and FHA loans, like I might have known in my youth, they don't exist, all intent and purposes. Uh, the cost of everything is, is, is very high. More and more of them are still living at home, depending on their parents to help them out. My two sons are both engineers, computer engineers. They work on AI and, and artificial, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. They both are earning in that upper, upper echelon. Uh, and they can't afford to buy houses. They're both in Seattle. It's just, it's outrageously expensive. And then politics seem to be just nobody gets along with anybody. It's, it's, you know, the world is disappointing to them. And the idea of an all good God, and they look out and they see, you know, what's happening in the world, not just, you know, the uh, economy and the politics, but the natural disasters, the wars, the genocide. That's just hard for them to get a grasp on. 
And then you have the, the other generation, those that are older, those that I have an architect friend who was atheist, by the way, before I wrote this book. He has endorsed this book and is no longer atheist because his atheism was based strictly on left brain reasoning. And when you can disassemble that, you can see some other advantages. You begin to reason differently. But he's an architect. He was very religious. He went through a divorce. All of the church sided with his wife. He felt ostracized. He felt betrayed. He became very, very negative. Then you have trauma victims. And, you know, you lose a loved one. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, why? Especially, you know, you, you lose a child. And, and, and it's how come? I mean, it, it, when I was a very young man, I read the book of Job. Of course, I read the Bible. But it was really hard for me to understand a good God that would make a bargain with the devil in a kind of a bet uh, about Job put him through all of that, take his family, his wife, and then because Job showed fidelity, give him a new wife. And that was what? Equal? The new wife was as good as the old? And see, somehow you have trouble translating that. If I lost my wife, I don't know, you can't give me someone that's going to replace her. I think most of us feel like that. Uh, maybe somewhere down the road, healing, I find someone else, and the someone else becomes my significant other, and we have a love, a relationship, but it's still not a replacement for my wife. It, it, it's it, you know, entirely different person, entirely different set of everything. Young people or older people look at these kinds of traumas, and they very often push them out of religion. Uh, they feel betrayed. They feel that God let them down. They they feel that, you know, they're being punished. Uh, and so I think the reason that we find so many people moving away from religion is manifold, but particularly in our Gen Z and our millennial group, it all has to do with the condition of the world and these sort of Santa Claus uncritical approaches to the explanations that our religions will use. I mean, if you say God is all powerful, oh, can he build a rock so large you can't lift it? You see, we have, we live in an information age with an accelerated rate of learning, and we require more and more critical thinking of young people today. I, I talked to a couple of parents yesterday, and they were talking about the new math and saying, you know, I, I, I've got a 14-year-old, and I can't begin to understand this math that they're doing. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. We, we're really pushing a critical mind, and if you're going to have critical thinking, then you have to have reasonable approaches. Uh, or alternatives. And so, long story short, I didn't talk about any religions. I'm not 
attempting to uh, support or attack any religion. I simply wanted to show my sons and then based on their input, show the world that it is not irrational. You're not some dummy. You're not in some non-elite class because you believe in a higher power. Do you think it's possible that people are replacing one religion for another? And what I mean by that is they're replacing traditional religion for atheism or the religion of science. And science's supernatural event is the Big Bang. You know, like there are hundreds of millions of stars out there, but they all came from something that's the size of a quarter. Smaller than that, really. Singularity, you know, uh, according to Hawking's original theory, singularity is uh, not knowable in terms of measurement. If there is a measurement, there is time. That's a real trick. Because you see, if it takes me to X amount to go from here to here, get my fingers up here so you understand, here to here, then that's time. How long did it take, you see? And there, this is no time. Singularity is before time. But Hawking backed up on his Big Bang Theory before he passed. So where it's the preeminent theory, and, and if we say Big Bang, you know, in the beginning there was no thing, and from no thing, everything, that's not a lot different than saying in the beginning there was God and God divided himself and created all things. It's essentially the same teleology, okay? Uh, there is this, back to your question, there is this notion that I refer to as scientism. Uh, and... and you know, this idea that if you're a true critical thinker, you're a professor in a university, there's a certain elitism to scientism. I have professor friends who admit that on the campus, they're very closed about their religious beliefs. Uh, off of the campus, they're much more open about their belief in a higher power and so forth. I, I, I do think that scientism, atheism, give us, provide a support, a group. We are herd animals. And so if we leave one group, we like to join another group. We like to identify in another group. So I, I believe there's a lot of veracity to, to your suggestion that People do just change religions. Uh, I'm going to say they do just change isms. Mm -hmm. So earlier you were speaking about that forgiveness is the cornerstone of all religions. And the religion I know about mostly is Christianity. So the forgiveness comes from Jesus. What about other religions? Well, you see, when you look at the core to other religions... Um, and you look at their texts, and it doesn't matter which text. It can be the Bible, it can be the Quran, it could be the Gubernatsa, 
uh, Saab, it could be um, the Upanishads, it can be the Vedas. There is one a message. Uh, and that message is brotherly love. That's the best way to put it. Okay? Love is that one cohesive element to all religions. Um, animus is contrary to love. Blame is animus, promotes animus. It's not possible as human beings to live with one another, to love one another, and not to make mistakes. And if we're going to make mistakes, then we're either going to be blamed, which will breed animus, or we're going to be forgiven, which extends love. So it's kind of like heads is brotherly love, tails is forgiveness. It's the same coin. And it's the, the same coin in the heart, at the, at the base of all the teachings of all extant religions. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of having a spiritual life versus those of a non-believer? Yeah, I can. Uh, in fact, it's a good time to talk about reason. You see, we have two, two kinds of reason. If, you just, if you're a logic student, you're familiar with theoretical reason, you know? Uh, we use that for lots of things, including mathematics and science. And there's practical reason. Now, practical reason is the reason that we use every day that we live with. So I get up in the morning, and maybe I don't feel too well. And, you know, I'm concerned about COVID. And, oh, maybe I should run out and get a COVID test. Maybe I should go see the doctor. Well, no, I think this is going to pass. I, I really have got a lot to do today. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, I make a decision, Jeff. And that decision is what we call practical reasoning. And we make these decisions every day. How fast should an automobile drive down the highway? What, you know, these are practical reasons. All right. Any practical reason should be outcome-oriented. We want the best, okay? So if I'm making a decision about the doctor or not, if my outcome orientation is I want to die, well, I make a different decision than if I want to live a long, healthy life. All right, so I'm going to be outcome-oriented, and I'm going to use practical reasoning, and I'm going to look and see what benefits are there to a spiritual life. Well, hey, I find out that you lived longer. Study after study has shown that. In fact, the centurions, um, uh, people who lived to be 100 years old and more, and yeah, centurions, uh, universally have this sense of connectedness, higher purpose, uh, higher life after death, higher power, okay? So you live longer, you live healthier, you experience less depression, your blood pressure is better, you're more likely to be monogamous, faithful. In fact, some of the studies that I've actually included in the book just for fun, 
those studies show that, you know, you're going to eat less junk food. You're going to experience less anxiety. Uh, you're going to be motivated to have more checkups, to, to have a better diet. You're going to take better care of yourself. You're going to have better relationships. Those relationships are going to be longer lasting. Most importantly, if there is such a thing to health and longevity, is that you're going to have a higher sense of satisfaction with your life. At least with spirituality, I think you don't have fear involved with, if you don't do this, then you're going to this bad place. Can you talk a little bit about how possibly fear deters people from religion? You know, the interesting thing is, if you look at the religious activity in the United States over the past 100 or so years, well, 150, we find that the importance of religion, the attendance in church, that was the metric that was used, diminished significantly until the birth of evangelism. And... Uh, Hellfire and brimstone, fear, that got people to go to church, not to go away from it. So church attendance soared with this notion of a, a punishing God, and the hellfires. And, uh, and there are, you know, still, there is still a lot of that. It, fear is a motivating factor. We see it used in politics. We see it used in selling you a product. All these pharmaceutical ads, they're about fear. Uh, if you're over 50, you're likely carrying, you know, this condition. You should see your doctor. You should get your Medicaid. Okay. Fear is a major motivator. It always has been. In the savannah, when we were, you know, a few thousand years ago, many thousand years ago, if we couldn't distinguish between what was dangerous and what wasn't dangerous, you know, we were lunch. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have lunch. We were the lunch. So I can't, I can't say to you that fear, fear pushes more people away from religion than it actually that attracts them. It would appear that the numbers suggest otherwise. But there is a there is a large percentage of a population who sees this fear-mongering as just that. And you know, I, I suppose for me, and this is just me, Jeff, spirituality is not about going to church. It's about how I live my life. Living my life in fear, living my life with a sense of helplessness, hopelessness, um, that's, that's a great way for me to experience all those things that might happen if I've suppressed the optimal operation of my immune, my endocrine, and my ANS. In other words, I'm likely to have more disease. I'm likely to, you know, that said, uh, 
if it makes you happy and you go to church because you're fearful, but you feel that it gives you extra strength and support, you're a good person, you love your brother, I have no qualms. I, I know atheists. That, uh, I have two atheist friends. Uh, well, agnostic, because they both know atheism. You can't prove that there isn't a God. So when you take a shot at someone and say, hey, prove there is a God, you're standing in a glass house throwing stones, you know. <laughs> so agnostics. But they're great people. And they're loving people. They're involved in their community. They care. Uh, so, again, I'm going to come back and say spirituality to me is how you live your life. And to me, this book had to be shared for the sole purpose that you should know that it's okay for you to be spiritual and to be public about your spirituality with or without a a club that you belong to, a church that you go to, a religion that you pay tithe to, or what have you, because it is rational to do so. Once again, your book is called Questioning Spirituality. Is it available? Is it available on Amazon or other places as well? It is. It's available at Amazon, Barnes, Books a Million. It's also available on most brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, so you should be able to get it anywhere books are sold. If people have questions about this book, do you take them? I do. You know, my website is eldentaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And you can leave comments there, and I, I respond to them. So you've written 21 books. What are you doing now? Working on another one? Well, the fact is, yes. <laughs> We're about to send this one out to Kirkus for a review. Uh, but it is the seminal work, and it is, I'm, I'm telling myself, it is the last one. It is mind training. It's 120,000 words, and it's all about all, how these processes work, you know, how we deceive ourselves, how we're manipulated, how, you know, we were never taught that the brain is a mechanism that we can control like our fingers, that the neurochemicals in the brain do control us unless we take control of them. Mm -hmm. So if I expect as a case in point uh, to fail at something and I fail, my expectation came true. I was right. Because I was right, I get a dopamine surge. Yeah. That can be very addictive. I become addictive to failure. Understanding that all of the processes, the heuristics, the, you know, that's what this one's about. That sounds like a fascinating book. So once it's published, let's get you back and talk about it. I'd love to, Jeff. You're a wonderful host. I've enjoyed every minute with you today. Likewise. Thank you. Eldon, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? There is nothing in my life that has been more important than my ability to share and care. Nothing that has made more difference to me than my ability to put my head on the pillow at night and think about someone I was able to help. If you want to change your life, help someone. 
in however way, small way you can, help another human being. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. By helping someone else, you're really helping yourself. That's a great message. Eldon, thank you for joining me today, and I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you, and I wish you the best. Keep up doing what you're doing, Jeff. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.